You're listening to The Human Upgrade with Dave Asprey. Formerly Bulletproof Radio. You're listening to The Human Upgrade with Dave Asprey. The episode today is going to be fun. This is my friend, Max Lugavere. Max has been on the show before. He's actually been uh, up to my house uh, when I first met him uh, at the alpha version of Upgrade Labs, where I think he lasted 12 minutes in the flotation tank before he thought an octopus was going to eat you. Is that right, Max? <laughs> yeah, and I also distinctly remember you putting these electrodes on my both on my triceps and on my biceps, and that was one of the most painful things I think I've ever experienced in my life. Yeah, I was very impressed that you were able to do it for as long as you did it. Me, I that was a ve- that was a uncomfortable as putting it lightly. Let's just say that. <laughs> it's it's weird when you deal with all these strange inputs to the system it's not used to until it adapts. You know, cold water is viciously evil for most people until oh, I did it for 3 days and now I actually feel fine. Uh, but it's that adaptation period and I've had, you know, whatever 15 years of adaptation to electrical currents. Sometimes when I'm bored, I'll just taser myself just you know, for amusement. Okay, not really. Uh, <laughs> but it's just like cold light or, or cold, uh, cold therapy. Wim Hof, you know, our mutual friend, can just go hop in, in the cold water in a way that you and I probably wouldn't do it. Um, but it's adaptation. Yeah, you, you become more resilient. And I think the most exciting aspect of all of these modalities that, that you've listed and, and others um, that you haven't is that they provide a spillover effect where they help you become more resilient in other aspects of your life, most notably your psychological life, which is so important, yeah. especially given the, the current stress milieu that seems to be facing people. People are, are increasingly stressed out, underslept. Um, and sometimes you have stress in your life that's just inevitable. Um, and so for me, I think of the two ways that you can help mitigate stress, either getting rid of the stressor, um, but in some cases you obviously can't do that, the, the more viable alternative um, is to is to increase your your capacity to fight fight it off to become more resilient. Yeah, or maybe to accept, right? Just say, okay, this is happening; it'll stop, right? And and to just be at that state of equanimity uh, when it happens. And you can do it with hunger, like that's what intermittent fasting is, right? And you and I both practice that. The one thing, though, I, Max, I I have not been able to reach equanimity with is is kale. <laughs> be forewarned that you will be triggered by the the one or two kale kale inclusive recipes. No, I, I mean, I th- <laughs> did you just say kale inclusive? It's kale inclusive. Yeah, my my book is <laughs> it's an inclusive. <laughs> Did you just say kale inclusive? It's kale inclusive. Yeah, my my book is it's an inclusive. Um, you know, I I think uh, the the recipes benefit from from the plurality of of foods that are represented. Um, which which isn't necessarily always the case, but at least in a in a cookbook, I feel like you know you. You, you did a you did a good job in it. Uh, to be honest, I mean, you're, you're looking at eating for performance. You're pro salt, which is really lacking um, in most cookbooks. Like, oh, go on low salt because the U.S. Department of whatever told you to, and they're just they're idiots. <laughs> they, they do not understand salt at all. And you're like, all right, salt is good. 
Um, and I actually think there's a bunch of good stuff in here. And you have a, a very good understanding of what to do to sweet potatoes and all the different flavors and types and all that. So I think this is a, a very accessible cookbook. So thanks for writing The Genius Kitchen. Yeah, thank you, Dave, for shouting it out. It's um, it's 300 pages of recipes, but it's also a kitchen and wellness guide. I didn't want to just make a book of recipes. That would have been too easy. I wanted to make something that was going to stand the test of time and and serve as uh, yeah, a resource for people, something that that they could refer to not just for delicious meals to cook, but also as um, I guess a compendium, a synthesis of all of my sort of ideas on food and nutrition as they currently are. Because my ideas, like yours, evolve over time. And my first book, Genius Foods, came out four years ago at this point. Um, and so I really wanted to make it practical and and approachable and achievable for people. And I broke apart in it each different food component from dairy to salt to fish to meat to plants, really giving, I think, readers a roadmap in terms of what to what to include more of in their diets, perhaps, and what to try to minimize. And um, as I mentioned, there's only two kale recipes. Rest assured that even if you're the most vehement kale hater, you're going to find lots of good stuff in the book. I, I'm here in the dessert section and the kale ice cream. Dude, <laughs> what, are you, what, what are you doing, man? Kale <laughs> ice cream with anchovy cream? What, what, what is this? <laughs> Really this is not it. actually in the book. Um, you know, flourless, sugar-free, lemon, blueberry tart with almond crust, like stuff that, that's edible. And it's not a zero-carb kind of thing, but using swerve sweetener in it, you know, which is a sugar alcohol, so it's not high glycemic. And so you're, you're on the moderate to low-carb, but not all low-carb on everything, right? Which I also think is, is really, uh, um, really the right direction to go. You don't have to be keto all the time, right? Yeah, I think you. I mean, you and I, Dave, are more aligned than we are divergent in terms of our oh, totally, I, yeah. yeah, in terms of our ideas. But yeah, I'm. It's not a. It's not an expressly keto book because I'm not in on a ketogenic diet. Um, I eat a diet that um, that that utilizes starches and concentrated sugar sources as a performance enhancing tool for me and a way to optimize certain certain hormones. But in general. Um, you know, it does acknowledge and, and I often acknowledge that we live in a time with widespread metabolic disease, right? Nine in 10 adults has some form, some component of the metabolic syndrome. And today added sugar plays a, a large role in that. It's not the sole smoking gun, but today your average American adult consumes 77 grams of added sugar per day. That's almost 20 teaspoons of pure sugar. And so I felt in writing a cookbook that I had no business adding sugar, for example, to anybody's diet. You you said something interesting though. You called sugar a performance enhancing substance, not white death. Uh, why the difference there? Yeah, well, because I, I think it's because whether the, the place that sugar fits in your diet is based on a number of different factors, right? Your metabolic health, your activity levels, your um, your goals in terms of body composition, in terms of performance. So for people that are, for example, bodybuilders that that are that that are like sponges for calories that have huge calorie budgets and um, and importantly large vessels for glucose disposal, i.e., muscles, um, they have a higher sugar tolerance than somebody who, for example, is sedentary all day, sitting at a desk for eight hours a day. Um, you're saying people with. Uh, larger muscles or, or certain people can use sugar as a performance enhancer. And and that's controversial. And it, it just so happens I completely agree with it. It's that if you don't eat sugar all the time, um, there are probably, 
three times I can think of, of sugar being really helpful. And most people know these times because they get cravings during these times. Um, if you eat food that has MSG in it, MSG is well documented to raise your, uh, the level of synaptic firing by putting glutamate into the brain and it drops your blood sugar. Restaurants that use MSG in their food um, sell about 30% more average ticket because people buy more drinks full of sugar and they buy dessert because they got a craving caused by MSG. And some people have tried to tie MSG to some sort of racism, which is ridiculous because MSG is used more in Western foods than in Eastern foods. But MSG will give you a sugar craving. And here's the funny thing. It's a healthy sugar craving. Because your brain's like, I need some help here. I got to pump all this glutamate out. Could I have some glucose to pump out the glutamate? So the one time my daughter had a migraine, we ate at a restaurant that used MSG. She starts crying and she's, I don't know, five or six or something. In the back of the going, what's going on in my head? I'm like, I know what this is. So we went to a Starbucks. Only time she's ever had Starbucks. Got a triple shot of espresso, put in four packets of sugar. And she drank and said, this is the most horrible coffee ever. And 10 minutes later, her headache was gone because she had the glucose she needed to dispose of this. And because caffeine is a great treatment for migraines. So it's okay. Like you said, for workouts, you can start a marathon in keto if you want to, but you better start having some sugar real quick, right? So it's okay to have some sugar as long as you're not having it all the time, right? Yeah. And also when you are in a, in, in a eucaloric state, meaning you're not consuming more calories than you're burning every day, or also in a hypocaloric state, you are protected to some degree, right? Like if you're, if you're hypocaloric, which is, by the way, you're, it's unlikely to be the case if you are a person in America today, but, um, but you have a certain tolerance for, for added sugars, right? Because you're, you're probably in a, in a chronic state of, of glycogen depletion with regard to your liver. And so consuming a little bit of fructose, even from an isolated pure fructose extract, probably isn't going to do the kind of harm that it's going to do to you um, if you were in a hypercaloric state, which, by the way, most people are, again. So, um, so yeah, so sugar, I think it's like, it's a, it's, it's the role that it plays in your health is going to be dependent on a few different variables, a few different questions that we have to ask first. But if you're regularly going to the gym and performing high intensity anaerobic exercise, then having glycogen in your muscles is really important. I mean, anybody who's a bodybuilder, who's a power lifter knows that sugar is a great way to draw, uh, well, first of all, it's, it stimulates insulin, which is one of the most powerful anabolic signaling hormones in the body. Um, it's, it's useful for explosive lifts. It's important for strength. There's no downside when that's your goal, right? Now, conversely, if you were on a ketogenic diet, obviously sugar is contraindicated, but I think being in chronic ketosis makes as much sense from an evolutionary standpoint as being chronically out of ketosis. It doesn't, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Amen. You can cycle in and out of it, but if you want metabolic flexibility, you're not in ketosis or you're not in carbohydrate mode all the time. You should be able to do some of both. That's intermittent fasting will do it, occasional ketogenic diets, MCT oil. There's all kinds of ways, right? So I, I agree with you there, but you actually dropped an F-bomb in there, um, fructose. Tell me your perspective on fructose. Did you just say that you might want to have some if you've been in ketosis? Well, I'm not saying I, I, fructose is obviously it's it's a fruit sugar, so it's found naturally in whole fruit. Which, when bound in the fruit in the whole food matrix with fiber and water, I think it's totally fine to consume because it absorbs more slowly. Um, and also, again, if you're metabolically healthy and you're active and you're not over consuming calories, which again you're probably in the minority, but 
no harm, no foul, right? Fructose goes preferentially to reglycogenate the liver, which has a glycogen storage capacity of about 100 grams, give or take, depending on body size. If you're active and your liver has a, a, a storage capacity where it can, f it's like a closet, right? If it has the room to fit that fructose, then it's all good. But today we're chronically overfed and we're eating more fructose than ever before in human history because of whether it's high fructose corn syrup, which is about 55% fructose, or even sucrose, table sugar, which is 50% fructose, or actually the worst offender is agave syrup, which is between 70 and 80% fructose. It's pretty much high fructose corn syrup for hippies, right? It is. It's 100% high fructose corn syrup for hippies. So I feel like for that person, fructose is actually not good because when your liver is full, that's when fructose gets exported as fat. You trigger um, de novo lipogenesis, and that's one of the major etiologies behind um, non-alcoholic fatty liver, liver disease, which we know is exploding in Western culture. It also is a very uh, easy way to elevate your fasting triglycerides, which we know is related to cardiovascular disease. So uric acid too, Dr. Perlmutter was talking about that as well. Right. It elevates uric acid, which is really not good for you. Yeah. Right. Yeah, it's not. It's associated. It's associated with all you know cardiovascular disease. But again, the the question is like, if you're in a, if you're getting a little bit from whole fruit, is there any harm in that? Absolutely not. Um, yep. If you are in a calorie deficit and you're consuming a little bit of fructose from from we'll we'll say agave syrup, the, the dreaded agave syrup, um, and the and the and it's not too extreme of a dose. Is there any problem with that? Probably not, because you've got a, a, an ability to store it. But again, nine in 10 adults today have some kind of metabolic illness, right? Non-alcoholic fatty liver disease is, um, sky rates of, of NAFLD is, are skyrocketing. And so for that person, that's the really unfortunate scenario, right? Where, where that person will end up at a Whole Foods and see a product marketed as healthy for diabetics made with agave syrup. They'll start consuming that. And all they're telling their liver to do in that context is to just export fat, to create and export fat. Yeah, and to make a ton of triglycerides, to raise LDL uh, and oxidize LDL and all the bad stuff. When I was really heavy and a doctor said, oh, maybe you have high blood sugar. Um, this is a long time ago. I remember I went and I ordered online, so you could even buy it at the store, crystalline fructose. Because, oh, it won't raise my blood sugar. <clears throat> because, oh, it won't raise my blood sugar. And you're like, now that I know what I was doing, I was pretty much punching myself in the face with fructose, thinking that I was healthy. And so a lot of these low glycemic foods that use fructose that is cut off from glucose, they're probably not helping you. And for listeners, normal table sugar, sucrose, is a glucose and a fructose glued together, and you have to be able to cleave them and then you use both molecules. But if you take either one separate, they have different effects. Um, I, I prefer to use glucose as a performance enhancer. So if I was going to do a high-intensity workout and I wanted to burn carbs during it, you could take straight glucose, also known as dextrose, uh, which means it comes from corn, but it's the same as glucose. Um, and it is a performance enhancer. It'll raise your insulin, which is good for putting on muscle and probably bad for longevity if you do it all the time, which is why spikes in it maybe aren't so bad. And 
why chronically elevated insulin and chronically elevated blood sugar are really bad for you. So I, I appreciate that you call that out. And your recipes are not high sugar, but I, I think I saw some fruit in there. And I'm in support of eating a piece of fruit. Eating 10 pieces of fruit in a fruit salad as a vegan for breakfast will trash your biology because it does have too much fructose, even though it's packaged with water or whatever. But moderate consumption is good. Excessive is not, right? Yeah, absolutely. And it's important to note that the, I mean, if you take the word, first of all, the glycemic index is just on the cusp of being retired at this point because its utility is very limited, right? Because we don't tend to eat single foods in isolation. We eat meals. Um, and also there are different kinds of sugars that render the glycemic index of a sugar kind of moot. <laughs> And also there are different kinds of sugars that render the glycemic index of a sugar kind of moot. Glu glucose, as you mentioned, first of all, glycemic and glucose, those words are related in the sense that it's really only glucose that will raise your blood sugar because it goes straight into the blood, right? So glucose has a glycemic index of 100. So does dextrose, I'm assuming. Sucrose, as you mentioned, because it's half fructose and half glucose, it's somewhere in the middle because it's, it's again, each molecule has, it's 50% glucose, 50% fructose. So it has a glycemic index of about 65%. And in fact, one slice of whole wheat bread has a higher glycemic index, meaning it contains more glucose than table sugar, which is, which is not 100% glucose. And then you have fructose, which has a low glycemic index, which can be deceiving. And that's one of the reasons why it's always marketed as a diabetic-friendly sweetener because of the low glycemic index. But it doesn't matter. It still provides the same amount of calories and it goes, um, it's probably even worse in that it goes straight to the liver and somebody with type 2 diabetes very likely already also has fatty liver and all you're doing is throwing fuel onto the fire in that scenario. Completely right. Uh, so there, there's a lot of nuances here and if you're listening to this going, what the heck do I do? The answer is we're going to have sugar. Having some fruit is a great way to do it and do it after a meal because whatever's in the meal, if it's a normal meal, is going to blunt whatever would happen from uh, from the sugar. And a lot of people who have a levels meter, like I do, one of the continuous glucose monitors, I've had a couple episodes on those. I, I know you've played with them as well. I'm an investor, advisor, and full disclosure, et cetera, et cetera. But um, when you use levels to look at your blood glucose, I could eat a meal that keeps my blood sugar totally stable, and you eat it, and it could spike your blood sugar and vice versa because different people respond to different foods. So the glycemic index is pretty much um, an act of government and industry uh, research masturbation. A whole lot of motion, but nothing productive happened at the end. Um, th th there was, you know, um, I'm sure they felt good spending whatever billion dollars on all that research and justifying a bunch of stuff. But seriously, nothing happened at the end that was meaningful. So uh, I, we just got to call it out like the way it is. Yeah, I would agree with that. It's not, it's not very meaningful. That said, I mean, whether or not, I think we've been talking about how sugar, the role that sugar can play in health and why it's not always as bad as some people say that it is um, with, under, with certain uh, caveats, right? But still, whether or not sugar fits into your personal calorie budget, it is, I think, also worthwhile to talk about the fact that sugar, especially concentrated boluses of, um, of, a, of a moderate dose of sugar, which is not uncommon in the standard American diet, can still mess up your hormones. Like mm -hmm. they've shown Drop that your testosterone, right? Drop your testosterone by 25%. This was shown in a study where that uh, decline in testosterone persisted for two hours after ingestion. 
And then there was another study that found that um, a comparable dose of sugar uh, led to an increase in blood pressure, systolic blood pressure that persisted for two hours. And in both studies, I believe they used both a glucose uh, beverage, which is usually what they'll use in an oral glucose tolerance test, but they also used a sucrose beverage, which I think is more representative of how people consume sugar these days, right? It's like half yep. glucose, half, half fructose. So it's not good for health, no matter where within your calorie budget it fits. Um, and then of course there's, there's the dental health argument, which I think is uh, really important. And we need to start thinking about systemic health through the lens of oral health. Um, and sugar we know plays a role in feeding streptococcus mutans, which is uh, one of the most prevalent cavity causing um, bacterium in the human oral microbiome. And yeah, so we know that sugar is not good from, from those standpoints as well. Um, that said, when it's, when it's found in whole fruit, uh, I'm totally good with moderate fruit consumption. I mean, I'm not like an unlimited, eat, eat all fruits in unlimited, uh, quantities. I think that there's a continuum of fruit, right? Like tropical fruit, um, has more sugar than, um, than non-tropical fruits in general fruit today is cultivated and bred to contain more sugar than ever before in human history. Um, but that said, my personal fruit consumption is I'll eat zero to two whole fruits a day. In uh, with regard to cooking, there's this saying that if food food items that grow together go together. So typically, when when uh, developing recipes and just looking at curating um, dishes and meals, generally um, herbs, spices, ingredients that are from the same region that that grow together usually complement each other very well. There's a synergistic effect um, when it comes to cooking, right? But I think the same could be said for nutrition as well, that people from, from with, with certain ancestry probably are probably more adapted to uh, consuming the fruits um, or whatever the, whatever the natural fauna hap or, or foliage happens to be in that, um, in that, uh, from that part of the world. But today, as you mentioned, we have lost all sense of, of time and place thanks to the double-edged sword that is modern food production, right? We've solved for food scarcity. We now have um, food security, most of us, which is a which is a wonderful thing. But it's also led to the fact that our bodies have lost touch with seasonality, which is a, I think, a major a major problem. Tell me about big food and your perspective on it, Max. I mean, you have a real great story about Alzheimer's, about food. Just walk me through that. Yeah, well, first of all, what you were talking about reminds me of this uh, phrase that I see a lot within the real like nu woke nutritional orthodoxy that food is food. But I'm my I always like to push back, at least in my own head, and 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 ask what is our definition of food? If it's just that something that provides calories and is edible is food, then what about play doh? Play doh is food. Play doh is gluten, right? Gluten is something that um, is according to many in the nutritional orthodoxy, something that we are well-served eating lots of, right? There's certainly no harms it, to gluten con it, consumption. It's high protein. The, you, in it's, fact, you could have keto gluten, right? You could have keto gluten, right? I've actually seen some seen some keto breads and <laughs> keto wraps. It's basically just pure gluten. Um, and so if our definition of food is so broad and vague to as almost be, to, to almost to the point of meaninglessness, then are we really in the business of should we should we really be in the in the business of providing nutritional advice? And my answer to that is no. But 
I guess that's for a for a, a larger conversation. I think that we we definitely need to have black and white definitions for foods that are healthful and foods that are not. This isn't about shaming anybody or applying any kind of moral value onto food, right? But it oh, is I, about- I, I disagree. I, I think we have to calculate deaths per calorie, which is why uh, a grain based vegan diet is killing more people or more people and more animals per calorie than a, a carnivore diet. So th there is a moral equation here if you believe that life matters, but animal rights people don't. They only believe that faces matter. It's very confusing. <laughs> yeah, although although I couldn't <laughs> I I couldn't agree more in that um, I totally am with you in that the I believe that the area under the curve mm -hmm. for suffering is far less with the consumption of properly raised cows, for example. Um, Amen, brother. Is, yeah, than yeah. it is for plant agriculture, which kills innumerable squirrels, field, field mice, rabbits, right? Not to mention the insects and the birds and the fish that are affected by spraying and runoff. There was okay. a, a, a research review that was published. I actually talk about it in Genius Kitchen um, that estimates that the cost to animal life is somewhere in the ballpark of $7 billion, which is comparable to what it is for animal agriculture. Yep. I, as a farmer, for my animals... I don't think my animals have killed any other animals unless like the pigs got a hold of a mouse or something like they, they would do that. Or maybe a cow stepped on a frog when no one was looking. All right. Th those are kind of normal. Uh, um, what's your take on conventional meat or industrial meat versus grass fed? Yeah, such a good question. Um, and it's a it's a it's a difficult question to answer because. I'm certainly not in favor of the factory farm system. I think it's unsustainable. It's 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 really doing a lot of harm to the environment. It exploits animals. It exploits workers. Um, it it really is no bueno. So I, I I don't with my dollar support the factory farm system. But that being said, if you live in a food desert, if you live in the middle of the country, and you you are are on a limited income, do I think that? Uh, factory farmed red meat should be avoided. I still think it's one of the most nutrient dense products, uh, in, in any, to be found in any supermarket. Chicken, you, you said right? red meat instead of chicken. I, I actually agree with you there. I, I don't think it's sustainable or kind or nice, but if it's all you got, it's a lot better than not eating it. Right. An impossible burger versus a piece of industrially raised red meat, ideally lean, in fact, lean cuts are the cheaper ones. It, it, it seems like that's probably a good trade-off, right? That's what you're saying. Yeah, absolutely. And you can buy even you can buy the cheapest cuts that are typically very tough and and not palatable. Yeah. And if you learn how to cook them slowly, which I show people how to do in in Genius Kitchen, um, you can you can make that beef even the cheapest cuts of beef become butter soft, super tender, and delicious. So just knowing how to cook, all right is a great way to, to help economize and to enable the purchasing of cheaper cuts of meat, which otherwise wouldn't be all that, all that practical, palatable, um, and enjoyable. You, you just made a, a perfect segue because it's something I appreciate about your perspective on things. And even in your book, you talk about preparation methods, right? And they have an effect on your health and they have an effect on what becomes affordable. And we have a, a kitchen literacy problem in the country now. So talk to me about like, like culinary literacy. And then let's talk about the healthiest cooking techniques. Absolutely. I remember when I visited you, your house, Lana cooked the most amazing, it was, uh, it was some kind of pastured heritage breed pork that you made. Yeah. Us. We raised them on Asprey farms. Yeah. It, it, it was, was our own pig. It was so good. And then there was some kind of vegetable thing that you made. And I, I remember it had pomegranate seeds in it. And it was just 
so delicious. And I was up there with the with the film crew, and we were doing that that segment. That was um, cool. Yeah. So knowing how to cook, culinary literacy is is an art form that's been lost on modern humans because right because now we're in the era of specialization. Right. We outsource pretty much everything that we're able to outsource from health literacy to financial literacy, and culinary literacy. I argue is is just one more aspect of of what it means to be alive that we've lost touch with. And so I think knowing how to cook even basic ingredients is so important. First of all, cooking at home is a powerful leverage point for better health. That's not oh, to be yeah. under underappreciated, right? So cooking at home as opposed to eating out, people who eat at home more, they can basically prepare if they know how the same dishes that they'll that that they'll get in restaurants, but they'll have fewer fat calories, fewer calories overall, less sodium, which I'm not demonizing sodium, but I don't think anybody would argue that your average American isn't already getting enough sodium, right? They're, I would. Yeah. <laughs> they're, well, they're getting, they're getting plenty of sodium because they're eating the standard American diet. But once, yeah. they, but once they cut those foods out and they adopt a diet similar to you know, the dietary recommendation, recommendations that you've made over the years, that I've made over the years, then where they're getting their sodium from becomes a, an important concern, right? Because sodium is a macro mineral. We need to ingest a, a relatively large amount of it every day for good yeah. health. And in addition to the trace minerals that come in rock salt that we're not getting anymore. And that's one of the reasons that I, I put the trace minerals back in the new danger coffee because everyone's deficient in trace minerals. But if we were to eat all mined or sea salt, um, instead of the industrial sodium that's isolated they're putting in there, it would actually change things. Uh, and a similar thing around calcium as well. Just calcium by itself, not so good for you. Calcium mixed with other minerals, probably better for you, right? So we're overemphasizing a few nutrients, probably for no good reason. Yeah, that's fair. That's absolutely fair. Um, but again, the, the majority of isolated sodium that Americans are consuming is coming from packaged processed foods, restaurant food, fast food, shelf-stable foods. Only 11% of the sodium that your average American is, is ingesting comes from their own salt shakers or from the salt that they add to recipes. That That's a serious statistic? I had no idea. 11%. My life doesn't look like that um, because I live on a farm, right? Wow, that's crazy. Okay. Yeah. It's a, t it's a tiny minority. And just think of the irony, right? You have registered dietitians that are telling the public to limit their sodium intake, right? Limit their salt intake. Meanwhile, the number one source of dietary sodium in the standard American diet you'd think would be processed meat, canned foods. It's bread and rolls. But right. when was the last time you heard a dietitian say, avoid bread and rolls, right? For better cardiovascular health. No, they say avoid sodium, avoid adding salt to your food. It it's funny, the, the British Dietetic Association, I actually renamed them to the British Diabetic Association because all of their recommendations lead to diabetes very quickly. Like it's, it's like, guys, nutritionists do one thing and shout out to the functional dietitians. I know there are many who listen to the show. There's people working to make dietitians more nutritionally aware, but these are the people who give you NutraSweet Jello in the hospital with you know a corn oil pudding and somehow it's supposed to make you heal. So I, I appreciate your mention there. Uh, that yeah, dietitians, if they tell you to eat rolls in the first place, there's probably a problem. But if they don't tell you to watch out for salt in them, it's, they're just not paying attention. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. And you're right. There are definitely some great dietitians out there. So I didn't mean to throw them all under the bus. but No, but the, you can throw their associations under the bus all day long. And it's really funny because the bus will just drive right over them. And they get up and keep saying, you know, all this ridiculous things. I can't even parrot them effectively. <laughs> but yeah, I'm, I'm with you there. So more buses for the traditional old school dietitians. I'm fine with that. Yeah. 
There was this interesting study that came out a couple of years ago that found that prevalence of eating disorders or having people who have had eating disorders in the past is much higher in the registered dietitian population than it is in than, than the general <laughs> no. population. No, I mean I, I say this with uh, with empathy, you know, that um, yeah. that that maybe that's the reason why some people gravitate to those to those professions, yeah. but it's it's sometimes echoed in terms of it. You can see it in the advice that yeah. is given by some, especially the more vocal registered uh, dietitians yeah. in the in the online nutrition space. I I actually when I was recovering from being obese in my early 20s. I worked for a network company called 3Com that doesn't exist anymore because Cisco just kicked our ass up and down the street. And they had a dietitian come in and I was sitting there eating like almonds and I'd lost 50 pounds at the time. Uh, and I was doing something more like the zone diet. And I'm sitting there eating that and, and the guys up there go, there's fat in this croissant. See the fat in this bag. And it was like Susan Powder stopped the insanity. And, and we kind of got into a, almost a fight about it. I'm like, dude, I did what you told me and I weighed 300 pounds and I stopped doing what you told me and I weighed 250 pounds. Like, how can this be? And it was, I probably wasn't that polite at the time, uh, but my brain was working well, so I'm going to give myself a pass. But yeah, th there was like, there was that energy in it. Thank you for, uh, for pointing that out. I, I did not know the statistic and it, it's, it sucks to have an eating disorder, whether it's orthorexia or anorexia, bulimia, any of those things. But if, if your relationship with food is not, this is nourishing, but it's something else or it's tied to your moral self-worth and all that. Yeah, we, we have a problem. So I, I, I had no idea. So that's, that's kind of mind-blowing to me. Yeah, it, it is a big problem. And that's why, and, and you know, social media is just a melting pot, right? So sometimes you'll make, you'll talk about foods and certain foods that you're better off avoiding and certain foods that maybe you want to consume more of. It's generally when we talk about foods worth avoiding that sometimes you'll get people coming over and and they'll leave those comments like I like I alluded to earlier. Food is food. Food doesn't have moral value. And and the response is like, I, well, I wasn't applying morality onto food. I was just doing my part as somebody who educates about about nutrition and and talks about these things. That that there are some absolutes when it comes to foods that we know are good for you and foods that we know are less so. I mean, a donut is an unhealthy food, and if you're not willing to uh, acknowledge that, um, for the most part, there obviously are some brands now that are making donuts that are utilizing healthier ingredients, but, uh, for, for the most part, junk food is called junk food for a reason. What if there was a way to level up your energy, get rid of stress and take more control of your body? Welcome to quantum upgrade. This is a new technology that taps into quantum energy to help you feel amazing. Quantum Upgrade has a lot of different products that help protect you from EMF and help activate your body's natural healing abilities. You can expect better sleep, more resilience, less stress, and better blood flow. The cool thing about Quantum Upgrade is that the products are backed by a lot of heavy-duty scientific studies, and there's a new measurable upgrade. You can now use Quantum Upgrade to increase your consciousness levels between 1,400 and 2,200 on the Hawkins map of consciousness. If you don't know what that means, do some research because it's impressive, it's fun to learn about, and it's something that I've come to understand. Ready to try Quantum Upgrade? Visit quantumupgrade.io slash Dave for a seven-day free trial. You're listening to The Human Upgrade with Dave Asprey. For the most part, junk food is called junk food for a reason. And this idea that all foods fit, 
that's the mantra traditionally of dietetics. It's the mantra of junk food companies, right? Of the, of the food industry. Because at the end of the day, you're not overweight because you've eaten our foods. You're overweight because you simply are eating too much of them and you're not moving enough, right? And so that puts the blame on the, on, I think the, the, the patient, right? The obese person. Um, and it says nothing about how to steer the ship in the other direction. It says nothing about how food affects behavior. It says nothing about nutrient density. Um, and so it's a big problem that, that whole, like all foods okay. fit food is food. Um, what do you think of the flexitarian diet? Well, I, I'm not so sure about that, but I am familiar with the sort of intuitive eating movement. And there was a, a meta-analysis that came out recently that showed that there's no good evidence that intuitive eating um, has any kind of positive effect on food quality um, or any other indicators of, of the healthiness of one's diet. So I do it, think that it's important that we establish uh, absolute definitions about what it means to, to eat healthily and what it means to not be eating as healthily. There, there's room for intuitive eating where if, if you establish a universe of foods that work for your biology, and it's not exactly the same for everyone. You know, some people can handle lentils because they digest them well, and many people just don't. But if you allow yourself to intuitive eat, well, let's see, sugar, uh, heroin. I mean, there's all sorts of things that your body's going to want that maybe aren't good for you. So <laughs> I'm, I'm with what you're saying. Yeah, absolutely. Our bodies have an innate knowledge of what is going to best uh, suit them. And the way that our bodies, but you have to consider it almost like the way that our bodies communicate its need to our brains is like a whisper that can easily be outdrowned by the noise made by modern hyperpalatable ultra-processed foods. These, well foods these foods drive overconsumption. They short chain. You've talked about the Labrador brain. They, 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 um, they trip up our, um, our prefrontal cortex, our ability to make, uh, to make emotionally responsible decisions to, um, practice impulse control to tune out distractions, a whole myriad of other cognitive um, abilities are basically hijacked once we crack open modern industrially ultra-processed refined foods. The, you know, whether it's the bag of tortilla chips, it's the Dorito effect, essentially. Um, it's the it's the ice cream, it's the uh it's the pizzas, it's the lasagnas, the breaded fried chicken dishes, um, it's the it's the coffee drinks that are loaded with 60 some odd grams of sugar. Um, it, it basically speaks to a primordial part of our brains that, that drown out that intuition so that we're not truly able to intuitively eat anymore. And so that's why this whole notion of intuitive eating in the context of the standard American food environment to me is, um, you're just, you're just setting yourself up for failure. There's something else we do that makes hyperpalatability, and it's something I want to pick your brain on, and that's how you cook. So clearly salt, how much you add makes things taste better, but there's a bunch of other things. Some are good for you, some aren't. So talk to me about the hyperpalatable worst cooking methods. That's an interesting question because we do, uh, we do cook, right? So we are processing our food to some degree. It's, we're, not, we're not processing it to the same degree as a food manufacturer um, with myriad industrial processing equipment at, our, at, at their disposal. We don't actually, you know, we don't have that. But just cooking, blending food, crushing chopped garlic, for example, I mean, that's, that's, that is a form of processing. Um, 
And it's fermenting too. If you make pickles at home, that's highly processed. It doesn't mean it's bad for you. It's just processed, yeah, right? Exactly. I mean, you get the, the the clearest illustration that I can provide for people is is when you bake a potato, right? If you bake a potato and you taste the potato, you're probably not going to be inclined to eating much, if any, of that baked potato. But the minute you throw some melted grass-fed butter on it with salt, no less, some chives, some sour cream, bacon bits, you've taken single ingredients that in isolation, maybe with the exception of the bacon, wouldn't be all that palatable. And you've turned it into something that is hyper palatable. It pushes your brain to a bliss point beyond which self-control is impossible. And that's why Studies have shown that when all we do or we eat these kinds of hyperpalatable foods, we, eat, we effortlessly eat ourselves into a calorie surplus of about 500 calories. Conversely, when, when not given access to these hyperpalatable ultra-processed foods, we tend to come in effortlessly at a calorie deficit. In both cases, we're eating to satiety. It's called ad libitum feeding. And so that 800-calorie swing is determined purely by food quality and the hyperpalatability or lack thereof of a, of a given food. So I'm not telling people to not make their foods hyperpalatable. In fact, look, my book is full of foods that I would well, easily describe as being hyperpalatable. But it's it's just being aware of of the way that that those kinds of foods affect your hunger. This way, it's informed consent. That I think is what a lot of my work is about. <laughs> you it's, can't be in favor of informed consent. That's so 2019. Come on, man. <laughs> You're right. It, it, it is so 2019. Well, I'm for informed consent, and I think informed consent is crucially important. We talk about it usually in terms of various injectables and pharmaceuticals and treatments and things like that, surgeries. Um, but I think informed consent is really important when it comes to the foods, the foods that we're eating. And if you're not aware of how food is affecting your behavior, um, then, then, then you're going to experience the moral failure of not having your diet go as planned, right? Or your, your way of eating go as planned. Often when we can't stick to the, 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 the diet plan or whatever it is that we set out to adhere to, whether it's in hopes of attaining a better body composition or better metabolic health or better neurological health or better mental health, when we can't stick to the plan, we often think poorly about ourselves. We think, oh, maybe I don't deserve to have that body that I've always wanted or the mental health that I've always wanted. But Usually that's the case when we don't, when we fail to acknowledge, or maybe we're just ignorant to the effect that modern foods have on our behavior. And so if you're trying to moderate the quantity of food that you're ingesting without looking at the quality of the food that you're in ingesting, you're putting the cart before the horse because the quality of the food that you're, that you're ingesting dictates the quantity to a to a significant degree that you're ingesting. So okay. that's why, so, that's why cooking, cooking at home again, major leverage point. There's two cooking methods that I, I want to call out as being hyper palatable and probably bad for you that you can do at home. And I want you to agree or disagree. Okay. Um, Let's have it. One of them is uh, char grilling. Okay. Even though it's delicious. Uh, and the other one is deep frying. Okay. Uh, so char grilling um, obviously we know, or maybe we, maybe we don't, some of us don't know, but, um, when you char grill meats, you are creating various, uh, byproducts on the surface of the meat that are not good for you. If you happen to be a cell in a Petri dish, right? So heterocyclic amines, AGEs, and things like that. 
Um, certainly AGEs are not good for, for they, you. They yeah. clog up your lysosomes in the cells so you can't burn other cellular toxins and they're associated with aging is, is why I'm generally opposed to it. Plus, people tend to get cravings. Like you, you want to have a soda and dessert or uh, at least a beer or something when you eat char-grilled char stuff. But if you eat that same steak and it's, say, convection roasted, but it doesn't have all the, the byproducts from having the fats and to a certain extent proteins get aromatized, you actually are less hungry when you're done eating it. Like, like there, there's a quantifiable difference in how you feel. Interesting. Do, do you notice I've, that? I haven't observed that in, in myself, but I typically like, I mean, when I'm eating a steak, I like it to have a char. I mean, so that, so, so granted, well, it I'm, tastes I'm, good, no doubt. Yeah. Right? A little bit of MSG, maybe some agave <laughs> glaze. I mean, you could do whatever you want. Yeah. Um, <laughs> No, I, I, I love barbecue. I'm just saying it's not that good for you. <laughs> yes, no, no. I would I would agree with that. However, I'll say that my take on that is that every food has a has has benefits and risks, right? Um, yeah. So, so yes, when you prepare a steak, you're when you cook a steak, you're generating certain unsavory compounds that, if you were eating all the time, ingesting at every meal, probably would not do your health any favors. If you were selling a petri dish, probably you would not see a favorable result. But dose makes the poison, and in the, in the context of a diet that has um, that has antioxidants that is supportive of of the gut microbiome, which I think acts as a sort of mediator between um, our own physiology and some of these more unsavory ingestibles. Um, For sure, I think I think that you're that you're in the clear. Look, every food, every food. Um, I'll concede that there are some downsides to consuming meat, especially fatty meat, for certain populations, right? And I enjoy a ribeye. Um, now and then, but I'm, I have a genotype that probably puts me at higher risk for hypercholesterolemia. And so I'm, you know, I, while I will enjoy fatty meat, I generally try to eat, uh, leaner meat, but overall, I think that the benefits of eating meat outweigh any risks so that it's, you're better off eating some meat than no meat, regardless of your, of your, of your genotype with certain vegetables, right? Depending on where it's grown, it, it's able to suck up heavy metals from the ground, right? Dark chocolate. You and I are both huge fans of dark chocolate. Many dark chocolates on the market have lead and cadmium contamination, right, in them. But oh, almost all of them have some. And it turns out the, the more polyphenols, the older the tree, the more curated the species, the higher the risk of those, right? But they tend to be less of an issue because they get uh, bound to other things that are in the chocolate. So they're there, but they aren't bioavailable. Uh, which is an important distinction, but the, the levels that are allowed are, are different. So I, I find the higher the quality of the chocolate, you actually find more of those, which is weird. But you're right, they're in there because yeah. the root system goes deep or um, those nuts full of selenium, Brazil nuts. It's not just selenium in there. There's all kinds of other stuff in there because <laughs> yeah. they suck it from deep in, right? So I'm not a fan of those. What's one of the reasons I'm not a fan of Brazil nuts uh, for that? Yeah. So, but I mean, at the end of the day, like just going back to dark chocolate, I would say that the benefits outweigh the risks, right? The benefits yeah. of, of, of eating dark chocolate outweigh the risks. We can look to fish consumption, right? Fish from our, from our formerly pristine, beautiful oceans. Now most are contaminated with microplastics to some degree, right? Our waters are becoming increasingly polluted. But that being said, do the benefits of eating fish outweigh the risks? Absolutely. Eat fish. Um, so that's kind of how I'm sure on that one. I, I'm starting to question that. I, I'm still a fan of sockeye and all that, but I look at microplastics plus just increasing, increasing mercury. Like I, I look at halibut. I'm not sure I want to eat halibut anymore. Uh, just because 
even over the last 10 years, it's gotten so much worse. I, I'm starting to question, I always take metal binders and all, but you're still hmm. pro all fish? I'm generally pro fish, yeah. I mean, you mean I like think swordfish? Like, you wouldn't eat swordfish, would you? I or mean, shark? I would probably taste it, but no, I would not order, <laughs> okay. I would not order <laughs> so swordfish. It depends on the fish then, okay. It depends on the fish, yeah. I mean, salmon right, I in general, you. salmon salmon generally I order um you know, for the most part, more than any other fish. But there is, you know, there is some interesting thinking about mercury in fish that the earliest, the early studies linking fish consumption to mercury toxicity have been not fish, but mammals, the pilot whale, and that they have dr- huge uh, concentrations of, of mercury and they have very little selenium. But that in actual fish, there's always a lot more selenium than there is mercury. And selenium has the ability to. I don't know. There's there is some interesting research on this that selenium it, sort of has the ability to cancel out the mercury. Um, it, it's true that having more selenium to a certain extent reduces your risk of mercury, um, and it, it, it's it's tough. I, I'm I'm on the fence about fish. I eat fish, but probably less than I used to, um, and I'm aware of just of the increasing quality issues there. So it, it's it's a tough one. And um, wild caught sockeye is only two year old fish that lives half its life in fresh water. That's where I go and I can. There's just a limited amount of that. So, yeah. Okay. I mean, that's, but that's where like observational data, I mean, we have such limited tools with, with regard to nutrition research, but that's where observational data, data really does play a role. And it shows us that people who consume more fish have reduced risk for Alzheimer's disease, reduced risk for cardiovascular disease. In my book, I use primarily salmon. I wanted to make it really easy for people. And any fish dish that I use is going to, um, use fish that is that's going to be highly accessible and so salmon is the primary here's a picture of land fish um is that i I was trying to find fish in your recipe book that that's lamb that looks amazing um your food photography like you should you should tip your food photographer it's it's really good what are some of the fish recipes in here i was just going through we've got coconut curried eggs like what's your favorite fish recipe in here my favorite fish recipe, I'm glad you asked, is actually a, a dish called bacalao, which is a Portuguese dish. I'm not Portuguese, nor is my mom, but it's actually the one dish that my mom used to regularly make for me. And um, and so it's to me, that was a, a special addition. It's, it's a dish using salted cod that you can find at most supermarkets. It's dehydrated and it's, it's packed in salt. So what you do is you soak it in water to um, reconstitute it. And it's this stir fry um, essentially with extra virgin olive oil. You could use purple potatoes, olives. I love to throw a little bit of vinegar on there just for a nice, delicious acid. Um, and it's a, it's a really delicious dish, very commonly found in Portugal. Um, and, uh, in my family, I was the only, me and my mom were the only fish eaters. My brothers, uh, never ate fish and my dad wasn't really into it. So it was a dish that, um, my mom would make for me and it was sort of like our special shared thing that we would have together. And, uh, and so I never actually got the recipe from her, but I put my own spin on it and, um, it came out really, really good. That was a a dish that I did. I wasn't familiar with. And I I remember seeing that when I was going through your book, uh, it looks really intriguing. It does have though, like spicy peppers, bell peppers, paprika, um, seemed like it was relatively high on lectins. What's your take on, on lectins? I'm not picking on it at all. I mean, this is a yeah. traditional food and not everyone is sensitive to nightshade lectins. Just uh, I am, but you know, a, a meaningful number of people are, but um, some people are no lectins ever. I mean, your body makes a thousand different kinds of lectins every day. They can't all be bad, but what's your take on lectins in food? 
Good question. I think um, it's uh, it's a very individual thing. Some people are sensitive to it. Others are not. You can easily prepare your food. Um, you can remove the lectins, I believe, if you remove the seeds. It's not a major area that I've done too deep a dive because for me personally, I respond really well to them. I'm not in the business of eating bell pepper seeds. Um, yeah, that's probably for the best. Yeah, probably for the best. So okay. for me, um, and, and most people that I know, bell peppers um, are a wonderful food. They're loaded with vitamin C. They contain a compound called luteolin, which has been linked to longevity. Um, also, Dave, all nightshade vegetables are a source of nicotine, which I know that you're a fan of. Just not Tobacco. enough to get high. I, I mean, I, I've tried smoking bell peppers and, you know, all it <laughs> make me cough now. Uh, by the way, guys, smoking is evil just because I like nicotine, um, pharmaceutically separated uh, nicotine. So, yeah, they, they are um, members uh, or tobacco is a member of the nightshade family. Even cauliflower has nicotine in it, right? It does have trace oh. amounts. It's, it's not wow. a member of the nightshade family, but it just yeah. it has some because it keeps insects down. So anything that's trying to there keep from go. getting eaten is going to make caffeine or nicotine or polyphenols or something. Maybe that's why I like cauliflower and bell peppers, but, um, could be, but yeah, I, people that people with active autoimmunity, um, I think probably, and this is all anecdotal, but probably do better without, uh, without lectins in their, in their diets. But, um, but again, I think lectins are fairly easy to find and fairly easy to, um, to cut around. And, uh, and so for me, they're not, they're not a, a huge concern again, benefits versus risks. I think the yeah, benefits of eating it, tomatoes, different. bell peppers. It's different for different people. I, I don't want to tell people not to eat uh, the nightshade family if they work for you. But if you eat it all the time because you have cayenne pepper, like I did, I, I used to slice up habaneros. I, I mean, I was eating foods that would make me cry because it just makes me happy to do that. Uh, call me a food masochist. And then I found out it was directly causing the arthritis that I was diagnosed with when I was 14. I'm like, okay, these are not compatible with me and it makes me angry. And one of these days I'm going to rewrite my genome with a virus so I can eat jalapenos. Like that's on my active list of biohacks that I want to do. So, yeah, I, but I love. Like I said, I, it's okay. It's okay. I love spicy food. People who eat spicy food have reduced risk of early mortality by fourteen percent, which that's not nothing. Um, so it's the herbs, it's the spices, and also herbs and spices. Knowing how to master herbs and spices in the kitchen, great way to reduce uh, the calories that typically come from sauces. So knowing how to how to spice your food. Spices, herbs, full of, of powerful bioactive compounds, various polyphenols and the like, um, a really powerful uh, um, it, in, ingredient to wield in the kitchen. It's funny. We talk about the French paradox, uh, which is so multi-layered. And, and it's, well, why don't French people get fat when they eat like French people? And that's the paradox. But the real paradox would be, uh, why don't Americans eat like French people and put butter and lots of herbs and spices on their food? Because when you do that, apparently you're way healthier. And even going back to your recipe um, using salted cod, we used to use rock salt to salt cod. So we're getting all of our trace minerals from salted meat and salted fish that we don't get anymore. So there's this really cool thing you brought up there. Like, yeah, be spice and herb literate. And when you do that, it tastes better. Um, you, you just want to eat it. And it's got all sorts of nutritional benefits that aren't readily apparent. Absolutely. There was a, a, I believe it was published in the BMJ a couple of years ago, but they basically quantified commonly consumed foods and they looked at which, which common, which of the commonly consumed foods had the highest concentration of polyphenols and herbs and spices were at the top of that list along with cacao. Yep. So way, way higher than any of the so-called health foods, even like bell peppers or even kale. 
um, God forbid, uh, um, on a per gram basis, they're nothing compared to oregano or rosemary or yarrow or any of the weird spices most people don't even use. So, um, yeah, they, pro- they provide potent flavors and, and that's those polyphenols have bitter flavors as a, as a purposeful, um, adaptation to ward off smaller animals. Right. But it's those, those bitter flavors are attributed to volatile organic compounds that, um, give our food, especially when combined synergistically, really wonderful flavors. And it's also the reason why fresh food tastes better than preserved food, because it's some of those comp, some of those compounds are lost in the cooking process. It's not all of the, not every herb has flavors that are attributable to these volatile compounds. Like for example, most recipes that require oregano, you're fine using dried oregano, but you'll seldom see a recipe ask for dried parsley or dried basil or dried cilantro is terrible. I don't even like it. Exactly. Exactly. It is. It's really bad. And it's because the flavors that are characteristic of those herbs are volatile. They don't live for a very long time. Right. And so that's why you want to use a mix of fresh herbs, dried herbs and spices with spot with spices. Most of the time dried is sufficient. I'm with you there. All right. You got a hundred recipes in the Genius Kitchen cookbook. And I almost don't want to ask you this question because I know hard it is to make a cookbook like this because I, I did the Bulletproof Diet Cookbook years ago. And it's it's so much work to get the flavors right and get each recipe right. And people would always say, Dave, what's your favorite recipe? I'm like, oh my God, I don't even know. But I'm going to do the same thing back to you. Favorite recipe, one recipe from the Genius Kitchen that is the one you could not live without. Oh man, my favorite recipe. I don't know if you're going to like this recipe, Dave, but um one of my favorite recipes is a it's a it's a <laughs> I do have some plant-based recipes in my book. So it's a <laughs> vegan mac and cheese using spiralized carrots as the noodle. Oh, that's going to be delicious. I spiralized carrots, you can do so much with those. Oh yeah. Um, so a lot of people who good. aren't former vegans like me don't know what spiralizing is. Can you talk about that for a sec? Yeah. So you're basically shredding the carrot, um, into a, a almost like noodle like consistency, almost to the, to the, to the form factor of spaghetti. Um, and you can do this by hand. You can, you can do long, thin, more like fettuccine style strips. But if you, if you have a spiralizer, it's a lot easier to make um, basically they're like noodles. a $20 thing you buy and you stick a carrot or a zucchini or something. You just turn the handle and yeah. there's long, sometimes like two feet long strings come out that are great for holding butter or whatever sauce you have. Oh my God. Yeah. It's amazing. First of all, cooked, cooked carrots are amazing. Carrots are loaded with beta carotene. They're so sweet. They're, they're, they're just delicious. And then this vegan mac and cheese, not that, I mean, there are very, there, there are a handful of vegan recipes in the book, but it's, it's, it's a book that obviously, you know, I'm, it's not a vegan cookbook by any stretch. It's okay to have a vegetable dish on a plate yeah. next to a piece of steak. It's all right. I'm not going to complain. Absolutely. So we have this delicious, um, cheese sauce made using uh, nutritional yeast, which I'm personally a huge fan of. I'm a fan of fungi in general. Um, but nutritional yeast is one of these things. It's, it's almost like the vegan community's best kept secret. It's so delicious. Um, I use it on so many different things. And, uh, but in this dish, it, it, it shines in particular and it's just so indulgent. It tastes like it. It's like one of these foods. I've got a, a few dishes in the book that tastes like junk food, but is actually so healthy, so good for you. So 
I'm pumped for, for people to try that. It, it's one of those things where I go through any cookbook and like, okay, what in this works for you? And you try a dish and you're like, oh my God, that was amazing. Um, and then you try another one, like that one didn't work. And, and it, it doesn't mean there's anything wrong with you. And it doesn't mean there's anything wrong with the recipe or the foods. It's, it's a biocompatibility thing. And I think you're, you're really open-minded about that stuff, Max, which is what I like about the stuff you post. Well, Max, uh, it's always fun just to chat with you and hear the latest things you're thinking about. And I love it that you have a salted fish dish in your cookbook. It's super cool and it's very unusual. So that's, that's awesome. Awesome, brother. Thank you for having me. It's always a pleasure. And uh, I've loved uh, every, I love every opportunity to have you on my podcast. So we'll have to get you back um, at some point. I'll soon. come back on. Let's talk about uh, Danger Coffee. That'd be a lot of fun. Yeah, that would be a lot of fun. I'm so All pumped right. to try it, by the way. I'm going to be sending you some after the show. Awesome. Excited. If you like today's episode, you know what to do. Well, learn how to cook. If you don't know how, great place to start. Try this book, The Genius Kitchen because it's got a lot of good stuff in it. None of it is radically keto or radically vegan or radically anything, but it's all good and it's all thought through. And that's where you want to start. And if you get the book and you like it, you have a moral obligation to leave a review for Max. And if you don't leave a review for Max, it's like getting your coffee and the barista is really nice to you and does a great job and you don't put a buck in the tip jar. Like that's just what you do if you're a nice person. So leave a review for Max when you read his book because it actually matters. See you guys on the next episode. Thank you. You're listening to The Human Upgrade with Dave Asprey. The Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products. Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.